Now, grab your Bibles, and let me read to you from Luke chapter 8. We're uh, continuing this great chapter series, and we've chosen, or I chose, uh, Luke 8. It certainly qualifies as a great chapter. I want to read you a story that gets a whole lot of attention um, by the skeptics because of what it says and what it does. It has some things in it that are somewhat, hmm, really? So you uh, follow as I read it, and then we'll comment about it and hopefully walk out with a greater sense of the majesty of Jesus Christ, having discussed it. Here we go. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before them and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Pardon me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It was kept under guard, for he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were, was feeding uh, there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake where they were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. This, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, is a story about an exorcism. So that means that we are immediately confronted with the existence of demons, a subject with which our culture is very uncomfortable. In fact, they deride any who believe in such uh, uh, such objects as being primitive and backward. Angels they like, but demons, um, not so much. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not an art historian, but um, those of you who've ever been to an art museum know that demons are are well represented in art and literature. They are represented prominently in many works that uh, that you see hanging in the walls of art museums. Um, everybody, I think, knows about the, uh, the Faustian Pact, 
the Faustian bargain. You've heard of that before, haven't you? Where a, where a, 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 a human gives away his soul in exchange for um, a superhuman ability or, uh, or a trait or a pile of money or something. The, the one that comes immediately, the example of a Faustian pact that comes immediately to my mind is a Broadway musical that first appeared on stage in 1958 called Damn Yankees. Now, Dr. Young, what, what in the world are you doing, using as an illustration, a Broadway musical uh, from 60 years ago? Surely you can do better than that. Well, let me give you the backstory. A couple of years ago, um, at MUS, uh, a high school here in Memphis, um, MUS, as their spring musical, put on Damn Yankees. And the star of that, that musical is a man by the name of Joe Boyd. The character is called Joe Boyd. And the one who had that starring role was my grandson. Therefore, I took quite an interest in that musical and kind of looked at it uh, pretty closely. And the story is about... Um, a middle-aged man, a middle-aged real estate salesman who was a fanatical supporter of the Washington Senators. Now, some of you don't remember, but before the Nationals ever occupied Washington, D.C., there was a baseball team there called the Washington Senators. And they were pathetic um, on the field. Pathetic, particularly when compared with those Yankees. Uh, who just trounced everybody. And so Joe Boyd would sit in front of his radio and he would listen to the Senators' games and they were getting beat by everybody. And, and he kept saying in, in disgust, what they need is a long ball hitter. About that time, um, a man appears on the scene and his name is Mr. Applegate. And Mr. Applegate is, of course a demon and he makes joe the deal and joe takes the deal uh, mr Applegate promises to make him a long ball hitter and joe takes the deal and leaves his wife meg and home and runs off to become a star a star player with the washington senators and takes them all the way to the world series now in that faustian pact that uh, joe boyd make oh by the way Mr. Applegate changes his name to Joe Hardy. And uh, Joe Hardy has an escape clause in his Faustian pact. And it's this, that he can get out of the deal anytime before 9 p.m. on September the 25th, which, of course, would put him squarely in the middle of the World Series. And so, as you can imagine, Joe agonizes as to what he was going to do with the, with the clock ticking. And so, with only seconds left in the deal, Joe Hardy, Joe Boyd Hardy, chooses love over stardom. He returns to his wife, and he is out of this Faustian pact with the devils kind of schmaltzy isn't it kind of farcical cute but cute i think but folks there's nothing cute about this story the one that's found in luke 8 um 
In fact, I think what you're being given here, at least one of the things that we're being taught here, um, that it's, it's describing a life that is controlled by Satan. In, in uh, figurative language, the man who is dominated by the evil one lives a life in tombs or among the tombs, naked, chained. Mark adds this little element that he cuts himself with knives. You know, I've often wondered why that became a, such a big thing among young people, cutting themselves. Well, this man was doing that long before they heard about it. Um, and yet, the whole notion of demon control or demon influence or demon, demon existence scoffed at by our culture. And to that culture, I say this. Those of you who shiver at the whole notion of this foolishness of demon existence... I go back to a statement that was made by my theological hero, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, I believe in a personal devil because I have to. Because I have no other way to explain the kind of evil that exists around me except through a, the existence of a personal devil. Guys, um, to you who have bought into this notion that man is essentially good, I wonder how you explain all of the evil that you see around you. To what do you ascribe it? Now, getting further along in the text, I want you to notice um, the statement that is made by the demoniac in verse 28. He says to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. If I could paraphrase him, he says this, Jesus, leave me alone. Don't torment me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that there are millions of people who are saying something similar to Jesus right now because they believe that Jesus has come to torment them becoming a Christian would um, would make me miserable I, I would cease to be happy and I'd have to give up all my pleasures so let me ask you about that tell me um, tell me about all that happiness that you would have to give up Really? Um, that consumption with appearance that has led some, of, some young ones into bulimia and anorexia? Um, that too much drinking or getting high? That constant, that constant wondering about who I am and what gender I prefer? Um, you probably think that Hollywood is a happy, happy place. Or tell me, tell me about some of those pleasures that you're gonna that you're gonna have to give up. Which ones are you talking about? Um, that pleasure of a guilty conscience, 
um, what do you really mean when you say I've got to give up all my pleasures? What you're really saying is that you've got to give up all your sin. And that is true. Which of those sins has really been good for you? Is it the porn? Has that been a a healthy development in your private life? Or, Or maybe the affair that you thought was going to really add that missing piece of the happiness puzzle. Did it? Or, or maybe all that partying you're doing. Or maybe the gambling. You probably think that Las Vegas is a very virtuous, healthy place. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that you've been deceived by the devil You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is that the real tormentor is not Jesus. It's your sin. The thing that has made your life so complicated is not a relationship with Jesus. Oh, no, that simplifies life. The thing that has complicated your life is your choice of disobedience. To that request, Jesus gets to work. But I want you to see this, because I think this is so interesting. If you've still got your Bibles open, I want you to look at verse 22, which was not in our text this morning. But 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And I, and I said to you two weeks ago that this whole idea about getting on that lake, and that, getting in that boat and go across that lake was Jesus' idea. You know why? Because he had an appointment. And in between them getting in that boat and meeting that appointment... There was a storm that occurs that we addressed two weeks ago. But Jesus has an appointment with a demoniac. He went over there on purpose because one of his own needs to be rescued. Jesus knows who's over there. But as I said to you two weeks ago, that storm... When Jesus deals with that storm, just like here, he doesn't call on some higher power in the name of... He doesn't work up a sweat. One statement, one sentence by Jesus, that'll be enough. No contest. The man is ridded of that legion of demons that... That so controlled him. And what's up with the pigs? People get so sidetracked by the pigs. Poor little pigs. You know that, that, that there are those who have criticized Jesus as uh, being guilty of animal cruelty for having done that? Really? 
But first, ladies and gentlemen, let me say to you, it has nothing to do with Judaism. You know that there was a food stipulation in Judaism that you were not to eat any pork. But this is not Israel. This is a Gentile territory. They can eat pig, they can eat pork over there. It's not about food laws, folks. The idea was Jews saw Gentiles, Romans, as pigs, unclean pigs. And they wanted their Messiah whenever he arrived. They wanted that Messiah to throw those pigs out of their land. But instead, Jesus goes to a Gentile area and heals a Gentile pig. Because you see, gang, the legions are not out there. Legions are in here. Rome is not my enemy. Sin is. Jesus is not the tormentor. Your sin is. And somehow, you've believed a lie that if I come to Christ, I'm going to be unhappy and my pleasures will be gone. That's because dwelling inside of you is a legion. Those pigs, they merely represent somebody's financial resources. That's all they are. And all of the wealth in the world is not worth one soul. Lose uh, a fortune over one soul, Jesus says, you bet I will. And they drowned. Which explains the reaction of the townspeople. In verse 35, they come out and they see the demon, the demoniac. Uh, they see him clothed and uh, uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. And their reaction is, oh my goodness, they are seized with fear. Oh my, he has wrecked our economy. Folks, you got you to get this. Fearful, reverential awe is a healthy and holy thing. But that's not what you have here. The fear on display here is, if he stays around here, he will ruin us. It's a superstitious fear of further financial loss. And as you know, we prefer our prophet to Christ. So, mister, whoever you are, would you kindly get lost? You know, ladies and gentlemen, if the New Testament never taught the deity of Christ, that is, that Jesus is God, if there was never anything in here about him being God, which there is numerous times, but if it was not in there, this would be enough for me. Because you see, these people, these townspeople, they have no category in which to place him. 
Who is this guy? Who? Look at the demon. He's clothed in his right mind. And look, our pigs are gone. He's not a Roman. Who is he? Well, I don't know. But the one thing that we ought to do with him is get rid of him. And yet, unlike those townspeople, the former demoniac begged him, can I stay with you? You see, once converted, people who are converted, they long to be with this Jesus. Is that not illustrative, ladies and gentlemen? You got some who fear him and want him gone, all of which is produced by their sin. And then you've got someone whose sin has been dealt with, and I long to be with him. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the two groups of people that exist in the planet. There's only two, not three, only two. The converted who long to be with him and the unconverted who want him gone. So tell me, in which one of those groups do you find yourself? I want to hold on to my sin. As long as he's around, I'm tormented. So get rid of him. Or have you been brought to faith and long to be with him? My friend, you've got to do something with him. You know that. So you can either say, leave me alone, don't torment me, get out of my sight and leave our city. Or you can... Put aside your sin and embrace this Savior. There's one other thing in this text that I want you to see before we quit. Did you notice that the world's solution for great evil is to lock them up? We don't know how to deal with this, so just chain him to a rock. Ladies and gentlemen, you better build a lot of prisons. Because that's the world's solution to great evil. Jesus has another solution. And his solution is to give him a new heart. And there he sits. I love this image. Clothed and in his right mind. Um... There are many of us who remember what life was like when we were living in the tombs, don't we? So you tell me, what is the New Testament solution for raging demonism? What is it? It's, it's Jesus Christ. 
the Bible offers no other remedy, no other solution. And if we remove this one or alter the message, we're left with demons running amok. And some of us think we're already there. But ladies and gentlemen, according to this according to this story in the New Testament, I only know of one solution. Am I naive? Am I a, a simpleton? Maybe. But not according to this story. I'm the same one, according to this story. My friend, if you are right now feeling a tug to get, a, to get out of that life that's lived among the tombs, here's your chance. Jesus Christ. He is the only remedy in this age or any other age. Our Father, would you, by your Spirit, convince men of that? That their only remedy for us culturally or globally or personally is to be properly related to Jesus Christ and stay so close to him that we can become more and more like him. Oh God, if you've brought people here this morning who find all of this fanciful and farcical, Lord, would you show them that this is not some kind of Aesop's fable, but this is a story about the only remedy to our sin that's available, Jesus Christ. Would you cause them to see the great beauty of what it means to be clothed in one's right mind and longing to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, Father, dismiss us with a great sense of the joy of having a remedy and might we proclaim it urgently, loudly, and clearly, and accurately. We give ourselves to that and do so, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.